0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Beginning in the late 18th century, British rule transformed the relationship between law, society, and the state in South Asia. But professionals, alongside ordinary people without formal training in law, fought back as the colonial system in India sidelined Islamic legal experts. They petitioned the East India Company for employment, lobbied imperial legislators for recognition, and built robust institutions to serve their communities. By bringing legal debates into the public sphere, they resisted the colonial state's authority over personal law and rejected legal codification by embracing flexibility and possibility. Following these developments from the beginning of the Raj through independence, Elizabeth Lost rejects narratives of stagnation and decline and shows in Everyday Islamic Law and the Making of Modern South Asia how an unexpected coterie of scholars, practitioners, and ordinary individuals negotiated the challenges of colonial legal change. The rich archive of unpublished fatwa files, Qazi notebooks and legal documents they left behind chronicles their efforts to make Islamic law relevant for everyday life, even beyond colonial courtrooms and the confines of family law. Lowe shows how ordinary Muslims shaped colonial legal life and how their diversity and difference have contributed to contemporary debates about religion, law, pluralism, and democracy in South Asia and beyond. In our conversation, we discuss legal pluralism under British colonialism, alternative archives of legal information, the Queen's Proclamation of 1858, the role of the category religion in colonial politics, Islamic legal publishing, Muslim marriage registers, the Muslim Personal Law Application Act of 1937, and the effects of Islamic legal practices in the lives of everyday people. I'm Christian Peterson, one of your co-hosts for the New Books and Islamic Studies channel on the New Books Network. Here's my conversation with Elizabeth Lost on Everyday Islamic Law and the Making of Modern South Asia, published with UNC Press, in 2022. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, thanks. How are you?
2: Great. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about your book. Um, Before we get into the book, we always start with a little bit about our authors, though. Uh, So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about perhaps uh, moments or mentors that led you to uh, take the approaches or look at the subjects you're interested. What was your kind of Intellectual journey to uh, to bring you to this project.
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, so I got into South Asian studies and into this book project through um, literature and print culture studies. I had always been interested in questions about how information circulates and how the circulation of information and knowledge shapes society. So when I started grad graduate school, um, I really wanted to understand how the rise of affordable printing and publishing. In the vernacular languages so non-english language materials how that publishing was shaping political and social life in the second half of the 19th century we really get the rise of um sort of high colonialism with printing and publishing and i wanted to know what happened with that history at the time there were books like Um, Francesco Orsini's Hindi Public Sphere, Ulrika Stark's Empire of Books, um, Gauri Vishanathan's Masks of Conquest. Those books were getting a lot of attention as people were thinking about these questions of printing and publishing and education, how that was affecting people living through British colonialism. So I really wanted to do something along those lines, Um, but I had... As a master's student, student, been working with um, Mitra Sharafi at the University of Wisconsin, and she was doing a project on Parsi legal history, so um, legal history within the Zoroastrian community in India. And that really made me curious about questions about law. So I knew when I started a PhD program that I wanted to do something along those lines. I wanted to explore what it meant for law books and legal texts to be printed and published and circulated, not just in English, which is how most of us encounter them, but in other languages as well. So those were kind of the, the intellectual seeds of what became this first project. Um, and those seeds were first planted when I was living in Lucknow, and I was studying Urdu at the AWS program, and I was reading Professor Stark's book on the Newell Press. In that book, there's a reference to the Urdu translation of the Indian Penal Code, which was, and I would say still is, um, a publication that really fascinates me because what we get is this momentous change in law in British India, combined with um, the translation of that into a language that people could read and speak and the circulation of that text as something that people could buy. I really wanted to understand how those different changes and different uh, factors fit together. The more scholarship I read, the more I became convinced that this topic, this question of law and language and text was something that was worthy of additional investigation. But there were a lot of questions, I would say, that the scholarship didn't really answer for me at the time or couldn't answer well enough for me. Um, In part, I would say um, one of the Uh, One of the readings I had that kind of left a lot of questions in my head was uh, Bernard Cohen's essay, The Command of Language and the Language of Command, which was published in um, his book, Colonialism and Its Forms of Knowledge, has a suggestion or seems to suggest the underlying, I'm I'm simplifying greatly here, but the underlying argument seems to suggest that once texts are written, they had power and they were doing things to society and they were changing the way that people were understanding the world they lived in. And that if British administrators and and Orientalists would write something, um, then that writing would have power in the world. I really wanted to know what was actually going on on the ground and how people were responding to the texts that were being published and the statements that administrators were making, the text that they were translating. So I went off and did um, a first round of research in the British Library in the UK, and then I did another year of research in India. And that's when I started to see some of the primary sources that became um, really the drivers of the study that I ended up doing.
2: Um, it's really, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, this, this, uh, research, um, you know, one of the things that I, I really like about the book is you almost have this kind of double framing this, uh, um, I don't know if framing is the right word, but, uh, you kind of have like a historical benchmarks, uh, but then also these kind of, uh, transitions that are happening that we can't really place at like a particular time. Uh, and th- this I thought was very creative, this kind of, uh, you know, double threads that are going through the book, and I'm I'm wondering if um, you know you could talk a little bit about uh, you know kind of as you're doing this research, you're kind of encountering all these different texts, um, and then as you started to kind of construct it as a as a as a book project, um, how did all these kind of different interests because you really deal with a lot of topics? How did the, how did you kind of make sense of them all and to construct them into a, a you know pretty coherent object?
1: Yeah, so I think there are there are two questions underlying there. One is the question about the the interludes that I have in the book. So I, the the book is broken up into three parts, and uh, at the beginning of each part, I have one of these interludes that takes one of one of the the principal texts or the or the chronological landmarks that people use when studying or when thinking about modern South Asian history um, to kind of break up the time. So we have the Hastings Plan in 1772, which A lot of people take as the foundation of legal pluralism, religious legal pluralism in British India. Then we have the Queen's Proclamation um, after the 1857 uprising, which Begins a transition to crown rule, marks the transition to crown rule and, and some of the changes in, in governance. And then the Shariat Application Act, um, which is another bookmark that gets less attention in the literature, but becomes one that carries on into the post colonial period. And so part of what I wanted to do with the book was to tell a chronological story. I wanted to show change over time. I wanted to say that throughout this um, nearly 200 year um, period of time, there was a lot of change happening. It was happening in a lot of different ways. It was happening to different people in different ways. Um, and that's, that's some of the um, complexity that makes telling history of this period really complicated and really challenging because different groups of people are experiencing different types of change at different moments in different ways. And then they're responding to it in different ways. So one of the things I wanted to do was to have these chronological moments in the background of the text so that I could tell a different story over the top of that. And so that other story is one that is shaped by less common acts, less common laws, less common moments um, within the history of Islamic law and legal practice. Some of those are like the Bombay Code of 1827, um, Act 11 of 1864, which people point to as the end of native law officers in the courts, And some of the, and the Qazis Act of 1880, and some other acts like this that kind of parallel but don't actually map onto these big markers of colonial change or change during colonialism. So, that was one thing I wanted to do to give people the framing that would make sense for folks who are not experts in the history of South Asia and for people who are not embedded in the literature on, on law and legal change in British India to give them some benchmarks to hold on to. Um, also for students who aren't familiar with this period to give them some of those uh, kind of hints at what are the common moments of transition and change that historians have pointed to. Yeah, and it then very, over it was very that- was helpful
2: for me too. <laughs>
1: yeah, over that then to tell another story that's much more complex where we see that these chronological breaks don't always function as breaks and that there's a lot of continuity over those moments and then there are other moments that cause disruption and and change. Yeah, so I think that's the the first sort of like framing question how do you get all of these things into a book and how do you tell <laughs> one that that tells change over this long period of time? And then the other thing that I um that kind of forced me to think about how to bring different strands together is this realization I had when I was first, um first started to work on fatwas, Islamic legal opinions, um, I realized that muftis, the uh, Islamic jurists who are writing these answers to legal questions in the form of fatwas, they're receiving questions on every single topic you can imagine. They're getting questions on, on health and the body. They're getting questions on family and relationships. They're getting questions on transportation and technology. They're getting questions on colonial law and the colonial state and how to pay your taxes and things like that. And so really, muftis are dealing with so much in the questions they're receiving. They have to know everything, which means that what they're talking about is also touching on everything. And so one of the things that drove me to write this book was the recognition and the realization that legal texts, fatwas and other genres, are actually incredibly rich sources for social history. If you're just trying to understand what people are encountering, what they're dealing with, what they're thinking about, these genres are um, provide a lot of detail about those questions.
2: Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it is interesting. And uh, perhaps that uh, if you could maybe expand on it for, again, for those that aren't maybe as familiar with uh, the kind of uh, scholarship on this area, uh, it it seems that you're doing a kind of very different thing for South Asian legal history, um, both with the kind of uh, the the framing of the book, uh, but also with your sources. You 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 seem to be kind of accessing alternative archives of legal information. Um, so, could you kind of just tell us, like you know, in a brief way, uh, what what do most or what do many histor- historians of uh, this legal history? How do they tell the story? And then where do you kind of diverge with your your sources and your narration?
1: Yeah, so that's, uh, that is one of the things I was trying to do with this book, is to offer a history of law and legal practice that moved away from colonial actors and administrators. A lot of the history of law in British India takes a very British colonial state-centered view. And to me, that view was... Um, in part, not the most interesting view because a lot of what these um, bureaucrats and administrators are doing is really not that interesting. But it also wasn't, um, didn't give us a full picture of what was happening at the time. Because it's one thing to say that administrators are writing um, certain certain things in their their reports, um, and I'll get into some specifics in a minute here, but they're putting something in their their reports. And then to say that must have been a reflection of what was happening on the ground is another thing to try to get into some of the, I would say, the regional archives and the more local archives to see that there's actually a lot of um, diversity and difference, not only in the way that administrators are responding to questions, but also in the types of reactions they're getting from local populations. So the typical history of law and legal change in British India tends to focus on a couple things. One, the rise and the expansion of the colonial state. So part of what's happening in British India is that you're getting the um, the expansion of a modern state meshed together with a colonial state. And in a lot of cases, it's a lot. It's very difficult to disentangle those two aspects. So what is colonial? What is a modern state? How are these two things together? Um, changing the way people are interacting with uh, authority and with the state. Um, So that's one layer of that story. Within that, there's another subset of scholarship on the making of religious legal pluralism. So with the um, Hastings plan of 1772, there is this idea that personal law questions, um, those related to marriage, divorce, inheritance, adoption, and other family related matters, those will be adjudicated according to the individual's personal personal status, which is their religious status. So Hindus will have their marriage cases and their inheritance cases adjudicated according to Hindu law. And Muslims will have their cases In those areas adjudicated according to Islamic law. Now, within that, um, scholars have pointed to the fact that Hindu law, qua Hindu law, is something that the colonial state in a lot of ways invents. Islamic law has a similar kind of trajectory in the sense that within South Asia, there's a lot of diversity in the way that Muslims are um, using law to adjudicate some of their interpersonal disputes and some of their intra-communal or within the community disputes. And so what the colonial state is doing is kind of homogenizing some of that diversity. Um, And the typical narrative suggests that the colonial state is homogenizing, codifying, writing, and then interpreting using uh, common law approaches to law, interpreting the substance of that law. And so a lot of the history of legal change in the colonial period focuses on what's happening within the colonial courts, what's happening within official acts of legislation, and what's kind of happening at a like a high politics register. And when I started to work in the archives, I realized that what's happening in the presidency capitals in Kolkata and Bombay, in Chennai and Madras, um, a lot of what's happening there is not trickling out into the rural periphery prolifer- or uh, peripheries uh, evenly or in the same way that you might expect. So there were some questions I had there about how um, laws and the influence of the state are kind of trickling out. And then there's also questions about what's happening in different regions. So how is what's happening in the Bombay presidency, which I focus on in the, the first part of the book, how is that different from the histories that we have from Bengal or from the Madras presidency? And then what does it mean for individuals who are just going about their ordinary, everyday lives? What does it mean for them to encounter some of these changes that are happening at the level of the state? How are they dealing with those changes? And then what does it mean for some of their small-scale conflicts, challenges? I refer to them as legal problems. How are they working within the new structures of government that the colonial state has, has created? How are they working within those structures then to continue with their everyday lives?
2: Um, and as you move forward here, um, the way you break down the book, uh, in, you have three sections and the first section, you kind of look at uh, the kind of professional uh, sector in the, in the term of um institutionalizing uh, legal professionals uh, in relation to um, the uh, East India, India, East India Company's uh, jurisdiction, Um, you cover, I mean, across the whole book, you cover a lot of details. And because it is kind of this, um, you know, from from the ground type of history, almost in many ways, uh, a lot of it is very granular. Um, but I'm wondering if you could kind of give us the the broad strokes, uh, you know, in the first couple of chapters, you look at both the kind of production of government, uh, government appointed uh, community causes, and then um, what you call, I think, underdogs in one place, uh, in the sense of like more localized uh, religious professionals that are dealing with, you know, practical considerations uh, around legal authority and and contesting those um. Uh, you know, contesting that criteria in many ways. What what was like the the scene here for uh, local legal practice, both kind of within the uh, kind of institutionalized power, and then these kind of uh, on the ground type of. Uh, responses?
1: Yeah, my first response to that question is, there was a lot going on. <laughs> <at> the <laughs> there <time."> is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the things I uh, focus on in the first part of the book is really the diversity of what's happening with different individuals who all, in some way, shape, or another, self-style themselves as as causes. Now, part of what I'm doing here is working against an idea that we may have inherited from Islamic studies, qua Islamic studies, that Qazis are judges and they work in courts and they decide cases or something along those lines. And what we see in the Bombay presidency, where I focus a lot of the attention in the first part of the book, is that we have a lot of people who have the title Qazi who are doing something within their communities a lot of times it's not running a court and deciding cases but sometimes it is running a court and deciding cases and so it's really here a matter of disentangling all of the different things that people are doing under the rubric of quasi given that we have the term quasi to use that connotes certain things to some people and it gets used in the historiography and in the um, administrative reports in ways that sometimes disagree with how people are using it on the ground. So the first in um, the first sort of introduction to these figures, I try to draw attention to the fact that we have different professionals who have certain claims to authority and status within the communities they serve. They perform a number of really important functions. They sometimes settle disputes. They sometimes notarize legal documents. They sometimes perform religious functions either in um, overseeing marital ceremonies, um, sometimes working in mosques, sometimes giving sermons. They do a number of different acts within these communities. So they have some status and authority and it often goes along with respect. Um, but they have different trajectories when they encounter the colonial state, and some of these figures are able to make the right arguments or present the right claims to colonial administrators to confer even greater authority upon themselves. So the Kazi and in, in the Kazi family in Beirut in, in Gujarat is able to do this. And they make certain claims that are appealing to the colonial state, and they're able to say, um, "We have, we're in touch with, we understand." We have certain um, status within the local community, and this will be beneficial to you. We're really happy you're here to uh, to govern, but we also have these roles that we fulfill. We have uh, Yusuf Morgay in Bombay, who has a, a kind of mixed history. He's he's really popular within with the colonial administrators, but then he gets himself into trouble with the local community. He's not doing exactly what they would like him to do. And some factions spring up to try to oust him from his position. And then we have a number of other smaller, lesser, well-known figures, including some women and some Hindus who are also making claims to the office of the Kazi. And part of what I'm trying to do here is both to say that we, we actually do need to uh, do more work to understand who these figures were in the pre-colonial period, but also we need to stop imposing some of the normative definitions and understandings of these offices onto those who hold that title. And we need to dig in to see what they're doing. Because until we understand what they're doing, we don't really understand what changes to that office mean for the communities they serve. So part of what I do in that first part is look at how they go through the process of getting recognized and reappointed by the colonial state, which kind of brings them into the fold of colonial government governance. Then I look at um, some of the ways that they work and operate within their local communities, whether it's um, interceding to quell some communal and sectarian conflicts, in cities like Mumbai, or whether it's um, notarizing documents and deeds for communities at different points, and they're doing different types of work. And then I look to see what happens to those figures who have made a claim for themselves, um, one that frames their work as useful and beneficial to the colonial state. What happens then when the colonial state starts to say, "Mm, maybe we don't need these religious figures, Because we have secular magistrates or we have secular notaries who are doing some of this work and the state begins to strip away some of the status and the authority that they had. Then what kind of claims do they come back with? Then what problems does the colonial state uh, face as they're dealing with these um, petitioners who are making claims to their utility? And how does all of that square with some of these more... um, Homogeneous stories of Islamic law and legal practice in South Asia, but also in, in other places. So those are some of the issues that I'm trying to disentangle and really to show people that there was a lot of diversity. A lot of it looked pretty messy. People made claims um, using different arguments at different times. And a lot of times um, figures who were using the title Qazi, we're really trying to figure out what types of claims would work so that they could retain some of their power, status, and authority within their communities and vis-a-vis the colonial state.
2: Yeah, it's it's very interesting uh, history here, and uh, it's always, to me, uh, a, a kind of uh, representative history. If it almost gets more complex than uh, than we're <laughs> than we're able to simplify it. Um, so you do you do a good job. It's a, 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 a very dynamic portrait that you provide uh, in in the second portion of the book. You, um, you know, you move to perhaps your original love of uh, kind of print culture and documents in many ways. Um, and you kind of mark this transition um, in terms of like a historiography uh, through uh, the, the passage of new legislation in the second half of the 19th century. Uh, after the 1857 rebellion. Um, and uh, before we get into the documents, as somebody who's in religious studies, um, you note that the, the Queen's Proclamation of 1858 um, and this, this kind of new principle of non-interference, uh, it has a lot to do with the category religion. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what role religion as a category played in colonial politics of the time, um, and what affects this kind of position, this new uh, uh, legal position kind of has on what we might think of as religious affairs.
1: Yeah. So the second half of the 19th century, one of my favorite periods in in history, um, my historian friends will probably disagree with me here, but one <laughs> of my favorite periods in, in history- Such a nerdy
2: statement. I love it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's so much going on. So we have with the this Queen's Proclamation, it's it's being issued in response to the 1857 uprising, which is is kind of a frightening moment <laughs> for the British in India. Um, I think there are moments where they're generally they're, um, genuinely concerned about whether they're going to be able to hold on to this prized colonial possession. And so, part of what the Queen is doing with this proclamation is to allay some of the fears that um, understandings of the uprising frame as the causes of that and so interference in religious affairs is one of the things that gets framed as a cause of the uprising. There are questions about whether um, religious practices and prohibitions against um, pork and beef are being observed within the Indian army and if they're not being observed then um, there are questions about whether Indians can participate in the army and whether they can continue to um, have this uh, rule interacting with with the British who are there. And so the Queen's Proclamation is is sort of stating somewhat performatively, we are not going to in- interfere in religious affairs. Nobody is going to be discriminated against on the basis of their religion. Um, And interestingly, the Indian princes and their states are also not going to be infringed upon. And so what a lot of people have said following this proclamation is that we start to get this idea that religion is is a category that the state is starting to recognize. And individuals are going to be both respected by the state on the basis of their religion. But religion also, in turn, becomes something that the state then has say over. So if religion is going to be a state or a space that's free from the state, then the state also gets to define what is in that space or what counts as religion within that space. And what folks like Brennan Ingram have said is that once religion becomes the space that's free from state interference, then Muslims start to say these things belong to our religion, and therefore the state can't interfere. So it becomes kind of a two way street. The state is, on the one hand, defining what counts as and what belongs within that category of religion. And then Muslims are also making claims to say, this belongs to our religion, therefore it's free from state interference.
0: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Thank you. Yeah. I I I also find this period of history uh really fascinating, um, especially for our kind of contemporary notions of religion as well. So um so the the bulk of this uh this section the second second section of the book um you're dealing with these kind of various print cultures um new forms of kind of uh public legal publishing um uh, FATWA institutions, um, more localized uh, kind of documents like Muslim uh, marriage registers. Um, you know, from how you were describing your kind of original interests uh, as a young graduate student, it sounds like this is the wheelhouse of of where you were most interested. So what, what does the kind of uh, spectrum of print culture look like in this time? What are the kind of uh, broader things it tells us about uh, legal practice and legal reasoning for for South Asians at the time?
1: Yeah, so the second part of the book really focuses on this question of of paperwork and papers, which is a an area of scholarship that has kind of been having a moment. There have been a lot of works in in that area, but it's one that. Is both challenging to work on but also fascinating to work on so one of the uh things that I noticed when I was thinking about texts and translation and their circulation is that there was a lot of stuff that was being published and circulated at this time um, that dealt with what we could loosely refer to as as legal topics or legal categories and so fatwa compilations so these Islamic legal opinions, were being um, published, they were being written, and fatwas, this question and answer genre between Muslims and um, Islamic jurists, were also being published in periodicals. So what we had was not just um, specialized books that were being printed and published for um, madrasa libraries or um, sort of highly educated readers, we had some of these texts and some of these genres being printed and published for kind of monthly news magazine type publications, periodicals that would go to different types of readers. So it wasn't just students in seminaries who were encountering these texts, but it was colonial officials. Um, it was uh, Muslims and other people who were working for the colonial state. So the colonial officials who were from the subcontinent, not the not the British officials, um, but were working in different capacities as, as revenue collectors, as school inspectors and things like that. Um, they were reading some of these texts. Traders and businessmen were reading some of these texts. So what I really wanted to do in my work was to draw attention to a lot of the discussion and the debate and the questioning that was happening outside of the colonial courts. If we think about law, we tend to go straight for legislation and law courts and particularly high courts. So we have sources from those places, but there are all these other sources that were happening mostly in um, Urdu, sometimes in Persian, sometimes in other languages as well, um, that were being printed and published and circulated. Throughout the subcontinent and also within the diaspora communities, um, traders who were in Southeast Asia, East Africa, places like that. And one of the things that I wanted to do coming from a sort of print culture reception studies background was understand what it meant for these texts to be published and then how people were reading them and responding to them. So in the, the first chapter of that second section, chapter four, I talk about um fatwa compilations and how those are being published and printed, and I talk through some of the ways that the texts go from maybe their first printing to subsequent and later printings and how the form of the text changes, the organization of the text changes, maybe the idea of the reader or the way that readers are using the text also changes across those different iterations. The chapter after that looks at um, what I refer to as fatwa files, so with um, with the rise of colonial bureaucracy, you also get forms of non-colonial bureaucracy, um, another great 19th century sort of uh, phenomenon that happens and, and happens across the world. So we get photophiles, which are, um, for me, come from the... Uh, The Siddhartha Aliyah of the princely state of Hyderabad. This is their kind of religious affairs department or their ecclesiastical affairs department. It has different names in the English language um, materials from that state at the same time. But these are where people are bringing questions to the Dharal Ifsa, the Fatwa Granting Institute there. And then the photo-granting institute is um, investigating those questions, asking follow-up questions, sometimes inquiring about um, deceased relatives, who predeceased whom, questions like that, um, raising questions about um, what exactly was said, what did this document say, things like that. And then they're um, doing some of their own investigation. So they'll go into the some of the assistants will go into the stacks and do some of their own investigation with. With, the, with legal texts to find answers. And then they're, they're compiling all of this information along with some of their routine documentation. Like we sent this telegram, we got this money order, things like that, putting these all into files. So we really get to see what goes into the making of a fatwa and how this office is coming up with its answers, who it's interacting with, how it's conducting its business. Is really um, a fascinating genre of materials, um, really gets into that nitty-grittiness of, of the written word. Um, and then the final chapter in that section looks at these Kazi registers. These are um, ones that come from a specific family of Kazis in the city of Merit, which is just outside of Delhi. And they have a long history of being Kazis in that region. But as the colonial state has stripped away a lot of their authority, they've really found a niche business in some ways of um, reading and recording marriages for local Muslims. And they come up with these really elaborate registers where they are documenting the, I think at one point I count 92 pieces of information or something along those lines, um, really detailed information about who's involved in the marriage, how old they are, where they're from, who their parents are, where they live, um, what amount of meher or dower has been pledged, um, who the witnesses are, where those witnesses live, um, things like that. And they're putting these into registers and then in the margins of those registers, they're keeping track of all their legal agreements. Sometimes those are divorces. Sometimes those are, um, Statements signifying that the dower debt has been paid. Sometimes those are references to conversion. Sometimes those are statements about other legal deeds and documents that all have a role to play in marriage. And there I'm trying to show that even though Pazis have been kind of relegated to the sphere of marriage, marriage actually has an outsized role in the way that we structure society. And I think. Other people have made this observation as well, both in the context of of U.S. legal history, but also in the context of uh, contemporary South Asia, that marriage, once it starts to become part of how the state regulates individuals and regulates society, starts to become about much more than marriage. It's about property. It's about contracts. It's about um, who counts as a person and what their legal status is. It has all of this stuff bound up into it. And the quasi registers really give you a chance to see all that's going into the making of a marriage.
2: Yeah, and this uh, very complex system of classification that they included all these different titles and names I thought was really interesting. And uh, for uh, folks who like looking at manuscripts, uh, UNC Press did a great job of including a number of, uh, you know, it looked like images of your primary documents as well throughout that section. So um, in the in the last part, you uh, kind of move on to uh, ordinary individuals who call on Islamic law to resolve, you, you know, everyday issues. Um and uh you, you kind of uh frame this with the uh an interlude on the Muslim personal law application of 1937. Um you said that this is kind of one of a uh, a common uh signpost, uh, but perhaps not as uh prominent as the earlier two. Um so could you kind of just give us a little background on on what this act was all about and what effects it might have had?
1: Yeah, you're right. So this is the um Muslim Personal Law or Shariat Application Act of 1937, um, which is one of the less well-known and less commonly discussed moments in colonial legal history, but it's a moment where um, Muslim theologians and scholars kind of step up and push back against what the colonial state has been doing. And you'll know throughout the book that I try to draw attention to the fact that there are there are different Muslims who are doing different things at different times in the book, and there are different, there isn't one uniform kind of Muslim stance on a lot of issues. So a lot of times what I'm trying to show is where different groups of Muslims disagree about things. And in, in some sense, the Sharia Application Act is one of these moments Because there's certainly a school of Muslims who um, are probably the ones who have found more employment in government, who have an idea that we can kind of follow the the textualized approach to Muslim personal law. We can write compendia, we can come up with these big um, law books on Anglo-Muslim law, and then we can have the courts that follow British and Anglo-Indian procedure, we can have the courts... um, interpret and apply that law and what the uh the act in 1937 is doing is really saying that that approach is undermining what should be the real source of law which is sharia and in some ways that act is more i would say it's probably more symbolic than it is um uh than it's effects tend to be practical. It's a way for the Muslim community to say, um, no, we don't want these texts or Anglo-Muslim or law to be what governs our religious affairs. We want Sharia and the interpretation and the reinterpretation of Sharia to be what, um, what guides decision-making for Muslim personal law cases. And then two years later, we get the Dissolution of Muslim Marriages Act, which kind of pushes back against that idea that Sharia is going to be the source of law by saying, here are some uh, decisions we've made about when um, Muslims can dissolve their marriages and null their marriages and their marriages legally. Um, and here's what they are. One, two, three, four. I think there are, I can't remember how many, maybe 10 or so um, uh, situations in which marriages can be judicially ended and so we go from having this statement about um sharia and its interpretation and reinterpretation being the basis for muslim personal law to an act that gets passed that says no here's actually the interpretations that we're going to follow and so for me this act is one that um points to the fact that there are different ideas about what should be the basis for religious personal law in India also points to the way that Muslim personal law kind of has this amalgamation effect where successive pieces of legislation are kind of piled one on top of the other on top of the other. um, So that when Muslims go to court, they actually have a big grab bag of tools that they can that they can call upon in different arguments that they can make in different contexts. And this, for me, provides a way to open up the the question of who's making decisions, when they're making decisions, and who's giving definition to some of these ideas about law, and then use that diversity in terms of who's saying what, when. To then say that ordinary individuals are actually doing a lot of work on their own, and a lot of interpretive work that doesn't find its way into some of these other sources.
2: Um, Now, when you you dig into the chapters here, a lot of it is dealing with these kind of tensions between colonial courts, Islamic legal practitioners, and what kind of legal uncertainty meant for these uh, ordinary individuals. what would you say what would you say are the kind of uh effects of um you know muslim publics navigating these questions about legal authority and um you know how how they're dealing with this in the kind of quotidian uh aspects of their lives
1: yeah i think there's a certain investment that a lot of us make in law as something that's clear and precise <laughs> and definitive and has um, gives us clear answers about what should happen in particular cases. And one of the things I wanted to show in, in this book throughout the book, but especially in this final section, is that in a lot of cases, people are really making do with what's available to them. And sometimes what's available to them is just the, the local mufti who might just be the guy who lives in their neighborhood or down the street, who they go to for advice. I think this is very common for a lot of people in a lot of contexts. Um, We have this, maybe it's a conflict with another individual or something's happening in our family, or we have some problem with, with work or have financial troubles or something. And we go to the person we trust to give us an answer about this. And a lot of the fatwas that I read came across to me like these types of questions. I'm having this problem, I have this conflict, I'm not sure what to do here. Um, And folks would would go to to the mufti to get an answer about what was the right course of action. And folks who dig into these chapters of the book might notice that in a lot of cases, the answers they got from muftis depended on context, they depended on personal circumstances, they depended on the amount of information the Mufti had access to. So sometimes when you go to that friend and you want a particular answer, you leave out some details. So there's always that possibility with these questions that individuals are leaving out details and Muftis are trying to ascertain those details in order to give the best answer. But the the thing that stands out for me from reading these, uh, materials is that law is happening all over the place. It's happening through different forms, and it's happening at different levels. And a lot of what's happening within the, the photo literature are not these big, massive, momentous political questions about um, whether India is a al Harb or a sam Islam. They're about What do I do about my neighbor? What do I do about my wife? What do I do about my son? What do I do about my business partner? They're really these mundane questions. But people are finding value in going to the mufti, and they want to get an answer that for them fits with what they should be doing as Muslims. And so we get a lot of details about everyday life. We get some redacted details as well. So sometimes not all of the juicy details that we'd like. But we get a lot of information about how people are kind of figuring out what they should do in the world, addressing conflicts, and then figuring out how to solve those. And sometimes the mufti can solve them. Sometimes the mufti refers them to another place. Sometimes they've already been to the courts. The courts haven't been able to provide a solution. So they go to the mufti, who either sends them back to the courts or gives them a different type of solution. So it's a lot of uh, making do, and it's a lot of figuring things out. As they go along. And for me, that's really the, the interesting thing that's going on in this period, is that there's a lot of change, but there are a lot of people who are just going about their, their everyday lives.
2: Um, there, there's tons of stuff and and really cool details throughout the book. Um, are, are there any thoughts you want to uh, address any kind of uh, things that we didn't tackle here? Uh, maybe a favorite story or, or or some kind of key point that perhaps I uh, didn't draw out here, um, you know, uh, either about this section or about the book in whole, um, anything that you want to add that we didn't tackle?
1: I will say one thing that I've, I've been kind of thinking about um, as I've reflected on the book, and that is the, the place of the princely states in the history and in the legal history of uh, South Asia. For me, uh, the question of where Hyderabad, Hyderabad state kind of fit into this study was one that um, other scholars had sort of asked me, okay, you're talking about a princely state now. How does that relate to the other story that's happening in British India? There's always this question of whether the princely states are, are an exception or whether they're an exception that then proves the rule about what's happening in British India. And I'm really um, doing this project and finding all of these sources from the princely state of Hyderabad um, really want to leave those, those chapters where Hyderabad comes in as kind of teasers for scholars who might be thinking about the types of work they want to do and some of the questions that haven't been answered with um, with the work that I've done and with the work that other scholars have done and really point to the princely states to say there are a lot of sources there that are quite different from the colonial sources. And we should be doing more work
2: to um, to look at those.
1: Uh, so I'll say I'll I'll leave that as sort of a a final thought.
2: Yeah, and this is certainly the type of book that uh, it sounded like for you when you were a, a young graduate student. You picked up and you said, "Hey, what what about this thing they're just mentioning in passing?" There's lots of uh, little gems like that in this book too. So I, I hope people will uh, track down the book and and take a look. Um, we, we always wrap things up with a little bit about things you're working on now. Can, can you tell us what we might uh, hope to see in the future from you?
1: Yeah. So in addition to some of the um, projects and work that I'm doing on princely state legal history, some folks will get a chance to see some of that in a, a set of blog posts that I'm doing for the program in Islamic law at Harvard coming up next month. Um, I'm also kind of returning to that earlier project that got me started in this work. And I'm going back to the question of legal publishing and translation and circulation, focusing more on the colonial legal texts, giving the Indian Penal Code and its translations some due attention and um, thinking more about what's happening in in law publishing more generally, who are some of the key players in terms of publishers? How are different editions changing the way that um, legal practitioners and colonial officials are engaging with law? So staying within this realm of legal texts and circulation, but returning to um, the the sort of colonial genres for this next project.
2: Yeah, that sounds great. Well, good luck, Elizabeth. Uh, And thanks for making the time to talk about this wonderful project.
1: Thanks. It's been great to talk with you.
2: That was my conversation with Elizabeth Lost on Everyday Islamic Law and the Making of Modern South Asia, published with UNC Press in 2022. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.